Fletcher was so good at grooming me and other boys subsequently that he normalised the whole process. Welcome back to Motive and Method. I'm Tim Watson-Munro. And I'm Dr Xanthi Mallet. Last week we spoke to Peter Gogarty about his lived experience as a survivor of child sex abuse in the Catholic Church. Maybe when I was about 15 or 16, I told him that I was uncomfortable with the things that we were doing. And again, being a good Catholic, he very kindly suggested that I should just go to confession because I'd be forgiven. But don't don't mention his name because he didn't feel bad about any of this, but if he did, he would go to confession. An extraordinary discussion, really, looking at um, the grooming, the brutality, the alienation of the family, the absolute control of the child, really. Peter's an amazing guy. He's an academic and an advocate for child sex abuse survivors. His story was compelling. Oh, it certainly was. And I, I knew Peter's story. I've worked with him for a number of years now, but I'd never, I'd never heard the, the detail that we, that we got to. And that level of trauma that's still so palpable when he speaks about it. So some of the things we're going to be talking about are how abuse happens on an institutional level, who the perpetrators are, but ultimately who helps cover it up too, because it's not just about the individuals, is it? It's about the institution as well. It's about the culture of the institution. It's about cover-up within the institution and the methodologies where they select these children and groom them. Uh, knowing that they won't be challenged by the victim's family because they're devout. And we'll also be looking at how things are changing. And I think that comes that comes about when we see um, the stigma around these issues being reduced. Victim survivors being willing to speak because it is it can be incredibly confronting for them, re-traumatising for them, but it takes their stories, I think, to really penetrate the social consciousness so that we see change and these people, these offenders, can't live in the shadows. I think that's true. I think the Royal Commission into Institutional Child Sex Abuse was a major vehicle with this because it validated the stories and certainly a number of the people that I've assessed since that time stated that they came forward because they knew finally that they may be believed. That's very important. I think the other thing that's very powerful, which we've discussed, uh, is the role of social media. Uh, You know, in the olden days, there was just newspapers, radio and TV. Now people can communicate across the planet, really, with their stories. And that's the terrifying thing about child sex abuse within the church. It's not just in Australia, it's in the US, it's in Ireland. In fact, it's just about everywhere where the uh, church has had a footprint. I think it's an important discussion because this is something that keeps coming up in the media. We know that it's a systemic and endemic problem. And so we're going to be talking about this in a lot more detail, looking specifically at the Christian Brothers, because I know that you have some experience with the victims of that group. And it's been a major chapter in the series of Catholic sexual abuse cases that have come to the fore. So as a criminologist, we would describe this as a paraphilia, the attraction to children. And I think as a criminal psychologist, you could probably give us the best definition of what a paraphilia is for our listeners. Well, child sexual abuse, pedophilia, is one form of paraphilia. In general terms, paraphilia is the experience of intense sexual arousal to atypical objects, situations, fantasies, behaviours or individuals. The Diagnostic and Statisticians Manual of Mental Disorders, which is the 
Bible of the American Psychiatric Association lists a whole range of these and eight in particular, voyeurism, exhibitionism, frotteristic disorder, that's rubbing in elevators and all the rest of it, sexual masochism, sexual sadism, fetishistic disorder, an attraction to shoes, for example, and pedophilic disorder. So child sexual abuse and attraction to children is one of those paraphilias. Would you say it's one of the most common in your experience? It's certainly one of the most commonly reported because, of course, it's a crime. Um, I've had cases over the years where people have been charged with frottism, where they've rubbed themselves against uh, people in stores and elevators and so on. Some of these are not against the law, so those people may not necessarily come to the attention of mental health practitioners. But certainly in terms of child sexual abuse, it's against the law. And when people are charged, uh, inevitably they're sent to somebody like me for an assessment and a report. And you also work a lot with victims of child sexual abuse and ultimately paedophiles as well. Uh, I have in the past. Uh, certainly probably the biggest case, as you mentioned, Xanth, was the uh, civil litigation against the Christian Brothers Order in Australia. This involved a large number of boys who, as men, were taking action against the church because of being sexually abused uh, whilst in the care of the Christian Brothers in Western Australia. You may recall there was a film called The Boys of Bindern. Those were some of the people I saw. There was also Clontarf Boys Home. And what happened was during World War II, so it goes back from the 40s right through to almost present times where this sort of abuse was going on. But these kids were sent from war-torn Europe by their parents to get away from the horrors of the war uh, and to keep them safe, believing that they would be safe in the care of the church and nothing could have been further from the truth. And obviously this abuse happened when they were boys. How would you describe them as men when they presented to you as survivors? They were broken men. Courageous men, but broken men. And it was very interesting. I was retained by this uh, firm in Western Australia and I spent about two weeks there using their office. I assessed, I don't know, in excess of about 40 of these people during that time. And they had a general litigation practice. So I would go into the waiting room to get the next person and I could tell just by looking at them that they were the person that I was going to assess. Their body language is broken. They looked sad. They were broken, crumpled men by and large because they had struggled with, you know, serious symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder dating back to their childhood. And what was perpetrated upon them was just evil simpliciter. It was just vile behaviour involving bashing, sodomy, slave labour, you name it, they were victims of it. So we're really looking at serious systemic abuse of the boys uh, covering psychological, physical and sexual abuse. And a lot of this has been extensively covered in the media, but I don't know that people will truly grasp the long-term effects that it's had on these survivors. Well, that's correct. I mean, it, it involved a whole spectrum of abuse. And I think the common denominator was power. And these offenders, from my observations over decades, are enlivened sexually by power. So in a perverse way, uh, they become sexually aroused because they have power over the victim. You see it in rape, for example, and you certainly see it in these situations where young children 
no parents, no external means of support, entirely reliant upon their abusers for sustenance, and they are forced into horrible sexual situations on a regular, repeated basis. And I think what we've seen as these cases have come to light over the decades now, sadly, and they they do still regularly come to the fore in the media, it's basically the church uses every trick in the book to obfuscate any responsibility for the abuses that occurred and to delay, stall and stop any rightful compensation claims that the victims and survivors may have or take any kind of responsibility for what occurred to these children under their care. It's a global truth. You may have seen the movie Spotlight. Richard Dreyfuss, I think, starred in it. All of these cases are coming to light now in the US. They're coming to light in Ireland, all parts of the world where the church had a fingerprint. Sure, as night follows day, there will be a history of childhood sexual abuse. There is a cloak of secrecy. I think it's driven by financial considerations. It's driven by a need to preserve the reputation of the church. And from my observation, certainly in the cases that I was involved in, there was a strong drive by the church to protect the perpetrators. So when the knowledge of their offending came to light, rather than reporting them to the police, defrocking them, putting them down on the street and sending them to jail, more typically than not, they would um, send them to another parish. And we're still hearing about that today. I mean, I've heard that story time and time again that the offenders or alleged offenders, depending on whether they've been found guilty or not, have actually been in a number of parishes where accusations have been made and they simply get moved. Well, I used to live, practice and work in Victoria and, uh, you know, Jared Risdale comes to mind, a notorious serial pedophile. There was strong evidence that he'd been removed from parish to parish. There's a cast of thousands around the world where the method of coping with this type of offence was to keep it in club within the confines of the church, secret, and rather than these people being punished, they were moved on, I suspect without even treating them. So the drivers behind their offending were never addressed and it was just like shooting trout in a barrel for them, a new uh, congregation of uh, victims potentially unsuspecting victims. And so if we look at the history of this abuse, as you mentioned, this goes back to kind of the 40s. So we're talking at least 80 years of abuse has been perpetrated. And at the time, the notion of child migration was thriving beyond other countries that are now defunct in the British Empire. And Australia was a destination of choice for these children. And to this end, the Bindoon Boys Town was established as a safe haven. And I know that you've had some, you've worked with some of the Bindoon Boys, haven't you, as well? And this was obviously far removed from the uncertainties of the war that was taking place in Europe. And they were, in essence, seduced away from their families with the promise of a better life in Australia, together with an education and emotional stability. And obviously that is not the experience of these boys. Can you tell us a little bit about more about what these boys went through when they arrived in Australia and what their experience of life was actually like? Well, the reality of that promise was entirely the opposite. They were separated from their countries and families of origin. They were highly vulnerable. A lot of them that I saw claimed that they were not educated. They were really put into work details to help build on these properties. They were essentially slave labour, these children. That was evil in itself, but then in addition, they would be brutalised, they would be beaten up and flogged and 
a number of these boys systemically would be sexually abused by the brothers. So they would pick them out, uh, they would go to their rooms at night and they would extract uh, sexual favours from them. On occasions they would rape them. And I can remember one boy, um, I think he was a Clontarf boy, not a Bindoon boy, uh, but he was uh, repeatedly raped uh, by one particular brother who would then beat him up uh, for being evil and having sex with him. So there was this constant gaslighting and double binding of these kids, uh, bearing in mind that they're still developing personalities. Their brains are not fully developed. They're, they're not even at some ages that they were abused into conceptual thinking. So they just couldn't understand what was going on or process it. And we've seen institutional sexual abuse in a number of different areas, not only with children, but also in the armed forces, for example. This hierarchy of power is certainly something that's really important in this situation in terms of how it happens and why it happens. But how do we define the difference between child sexual abuse and institutional child sexual abuse? Well, I think the mechanics of it are the same. I mean, both groups of kids are sexually abused. What you find in the community is that you may have opportunistic or predatory pedophilic crime occurring, but it may not occur on a repeated basis. It may be somebody that's sexually abused at school. It may happen a few times. It's now declared because there's a, a much greater public awareness of this. And they can go home to their parents and there's a safe haven for them. Some of the survivors, people I've assessed over the years, say that they were too terrified even to tell their parents because they were threatened with all sorts of sanctions, including killing the parents. The difference is with institutional childhood sexual abuse, particularly if they're living in the institution, they are completely powerless. They have no external um, counterpoints to, to judge with what's going on. Uh, there's nobody to talk to. They're reliant upon their keepers, their supervisors, their providers to give them food, sustenance and all the rest of it. And so they are arguably, I think, in a highly dangerous, terrifying situation with no escape. And obviously, you know, sadly, child sexual abuse has a long history and it's still a problem today. Would you say that it's worse in Australia or would you say that Australia and our cases that, that we know about, um, and a lot of it is very covert, and we, you know, the, the numbers um, are possibly more, you know, there are more victims and survivors than we know about. But would you say that Australia is unusual in the level of child sexual abuse that we've seen within institutions? I can't say. I mean, I've not been involved in the international cases, but I know, for example, in the UK, the modus operandi of the church came to be described within the English House of Commons as Britain's shameful secret. I mean, what an understatement. It was also Australia's dirty little secret as well. We've had a Royal Commission into Institutional Child Sex Abuse. It indicated that this is prolific. Judging by stories I've read and papers I've read, academic papers about this, it's prevalent all over the world. Wherever the church has been, there are victims of this type of behaviour. And so you've got to wonder about their recruitment processes. Why is it that uh, 
it's happening so much within particular church groups. Yeah, you've touched there on, I think one of the key points, isn't it, is the secrecy. So the societal influence on these young people, these victims and survivors to stay quiet. But what are some of the impacts on the victims, the people that you've assessed? Well, I think the secrecy thing feeds into the problem. And that can arise because, as I've said, people are terrified to speak out. Uh, They've been threatened. If the church is involved, they're told they'll go to hell if they tell their parents or anyone else. And I must say there's been cases that I've been involved in where the parents have not believed the child. The child has said, look, you know, Father O'Flaherty has been doing bad things to me because the parents are so invested in their religion as well. And so that's a sort of double whammy for those kids. I think what's pleasing now is that there is a much greater awareness in the community of the reality of this problem. Certainly 20, 30 years ago, perhaps people were more dismissive of it because the church was held in a higher level of esteem than it enjoys now because of this. So do do you think then that there may be hopefully less victim survivors in the future because that level of secrecy won't be such a protective factor? I think that's possible. The church has fought these cases with considerable vigour. And, and uh, money. And money. Uh, money that could be spent on treating and rehabilitating these victims. They're spent on le- lawyers to preserve their own position. I don't think that it will change that much until there's some inquiry into how these people are recruited. I mean, given, and I'm not challenging their faith for a minute, but really, if you have somebody who has such incredible control and power over your child, you'd want to know that they're psychologically well balanced. You'd want to know that there's no history of pedophilia in the past. How do we know that the person in this parish hasn't been moved from that parish because of uh, prior undisclosed or unrevealed conduct? So I think we still have a long way to go. But that said, there's a lot of litigation now and it's hitting the church hard financially. It may cause them to look at it more closely. And I think for potential offenders, there are now graver consequences for them. And I've certainly assessed a number of these people in the past, priests who have been defrocked and so on, and they've been charged with historical child sex abuse matters, so stuff that may have happened in the 60s and 70s. These children are feeling empowered sufficiently that they can disclose it to the authorities and they know that they will be believed. Whereas in the past, they've held back because in part they felt they wouldn't be believed and they'd be re-traumatised. And unusually with institutional abuse, we have two types of offenders really, don't we? We have the the actual perpetrator who's, you know, physically undertaking the abuse and then we have the institutional perpetrator too who is either ignoring or potentially facilitating, yeah, enabling that abuse. So why do those two groups, or why initially do people target children and why do these institutions simply move these offenders on rather than doing something about it and preventing others being victimised? Well, they target children because they find them sexually exciting. They act out on those fantasies because they can, so there's opportunity and they're predatory. So in an institutional setting, such as the one we've described, where the kids are really effectively orphaned, no contact with the outside world, it's open slather for these people. Uh, They keep doing it and they keep doing it. 
and people find out about it and they keep doing it because it, it's not, from my experience, just one offender in these institutions. There may be a, a cabal of them that are committing the same sorts of offence uh, over a period of time and they're protected. So uh, I don't know what happens now so much but certainly back then in a lot of these documented cases the offender has been just sent to another parish uh, with no kind of caveats or warning to the parishioners as to their potential behaviour. And so that enables it as well. And it seems to me that what's happening is that uh, profit is being put before principles. That's really what it's about. And one of the issues we have talked about a lot <laughs> privately as well as kind of in a public forum is the notion of nature versus nurture when it comes to criminal offenders. So what do you feel about those who sexually abuse children? Do you think this is something to do with their inherent nature, genetic possibly, or do you think this is a nurturing element or, or a combination? I think it's more nature than nurture. And, you know, I've assessed a lot of these people over the years. They tell me it's beyond their control. A lot of them have said, I don't see what the problem is. I love the child. They genuinely believe they love the child. And so they, uh, they don't see what's wrong with it beyond it being legally inappropriate. And they're notoriously difficult to treat because of that and because of the strong sexual arousal and drive that they experience when they're in the company of children. The nurture thing, that may be part of it as well. You may have some people that uh, offend in this way situationally because they're disinhibited by drugs and alcohol and so on. But I think by and large, I mean, I wouldn't put a percentage on it, but I would say it's largely nature. And that doesn't give them an excuse to say, well, look, it's beyond my control. It is be, it is within their control. They need treatment. In the US, for example, uh, they ran a program in Oregon. Rob Freeman Longo was one of the psychologists and Gene Ables was the other. And it was a four-year intensive treatment program within a prison that involved intense psychotherapy what's now known as cognitive behaviour therapy, as well as medication to reduce their libido and so on, drugs like Depo-Provera and so on. And they had to commit to this program. If they didn't complete the program, then they would not necessarily get parole. And then when they were released into the community, there was extensive follow-up treatment. But, you know, the research tells you, my clinical experience over decades tells me they are notoriously difficult to treat. Yeah, that was going to be my next question, actually. Does that treatment work, especially for serial offenders? It'll work provided they're monitored, provided they take their meds. And of course, there's all sorts of philosophical, ethical argument about chemical castration. Uh, my view is what's more important and uh, the psychological and physical well-being of a child's way ahead of that issue, in my opinion. But they can't be forced to take the meds. They have to sign up to it. Uh, they may then get parole. There's been some notorious pedophiles in Sydney that have been released to halfway houses with very stringent conditions. You know, they can't go near schools, they can't go near shopping centres where there may be children because these are powerful triggers for them and they have to comply with their medication if that's part of the treatment plan. A lot of them relapse. You know, they, they find themselves just driving by a school. They forgot to take their meds that particular day. In my view, it's always done with conscious intent because 
they start thinking about the joys of seducing a child. And we talked about the reason that the actual offenders do this, but why do the institutions keep this a secret? Why don't they stop it when they know that they have a problem priest? Why do they move them on? Because it's systemic, it's institutionalised, uh, it's about reputational damage. By the way, that's happened now in drives uh, and abundance. Uh, it's about the bottom line, it's about profit. And uh, people don't want their institution to be challenged. So often it's kept, it's not just the Catholic Church, I might add. I mean, a lot of other congregations or denominations and religions are prior to this type of abuse because the dynamics are the same. You have psychopathic, pedophilic men generally who want to take the opportunity when it's presented to them to sexually abuse children. But there's huge numbers and I think they're the reasons behind it. It's complex and uh, until these myths are exploded, until there's greater conversation about it, it'll keep going. And so in that regard, I mean, we, we had a Royal Commission into... Uh, institutional child sex abuse in Australia in 2013. And this was uh, established by uh, Dame Quentin Bryce. And uh, it was very probing, deep-seated. And in passing out of the Royal Commission, a lot of people who had been survivors of the sexual abuse decades beforehand felt sufficiently empowered to come forward and talk about what had happened to them and arising from that, uh, a lot of people who thought that they were out of strife were then charged and went to jail. So in terms of actually going into the church, you know, we, we've seen so many cases of priests perpetrating abuse. So what kind of vetting mechanism do you think could be put in place to prevent this from happening? Well, I think some sort of psychometric evaluation, an analogous story. Back in the late 80s, I was involved in assessing Julian Knight, who was the Hoddle Street killer massacre. And uh, as part of that evaluation, I wanted to see the psych file from the army when he was recruited. He was recruited into Duntroon to become an officer and a gentleman. And what eventuated was that their psychometric assessment was woeful. They looked at his IQ. It was actually very high. He was sort of in the you know, immense range of intelligence. But they looked at verbal, numerical and um, spatial reasoning, but there was not any clinical component at all. So fast forward, he pleads guilty, he's sentenced to life with 27 years, he goes to jail. And I think it was the Today Show, Channel 9, organised a discussion between myself and I think he was the head of psychology for this Royal Australian Army. And I said to him, paraphrasing, really, you, you have blood on your hands in a way because you recruited this guy, you trained him up to shoot people and to use guns, and there was no clinical evaluation of his potential for violence and all the rest of it. Was he trying to defend their psychometric testing, their yeah, vetting? Yeah, he was. He said, oh, look, it's, it's what we do is pretty good. And I said, no, it's not, it's woeful. And then I said, I've done these tests. So he was given the MMPI, which is a 550 question personality inventory, well validated, reliable, used around the planet. Um, and, you know, it stacks up pretty well. He was given the Rorschach, which is an ink blot test. And what came out of those tests was that 
he had a great potential for spontaneous violence, right? And that wasn't a retrospective analysis because of what he'd done. We weren't looking for stuff that would fit what he'd done. We're just looking for how he thinks. And that's what it showed. I said, if you'd done any of these, you might have thought twice about recruiting Knight. And giving him a gun. Ultimately, (laughs) they gave a potentially violent person a gun. Well, you know, he excelled in marksmanship. Uh, He failed just about everything else in terms of EQ considerations emotional intelligence being in the army and he was bullied. That was well documented. But you're quite right, they trained him up in uh, weaponry and, uh, you know, it was used to deadly effect some months later when he was, um, he wasn't actually discharged, he was waiting a court-martial for an earlier event, which consistent with what I'm saying, uh, he'd stabbed a mess sergeant at the private bin nightclub in Canberra. So all the indicators, the red flags were there I gather that subsequent to all of that and that discussion and, you know, it was a globally recognised case, Knight, uh, they changed their recruitment procedures in terms of psychometric evaluation. So why not do this with the church? Why not look at people who have a calling, and I don't challenge that, but why not have uh, a situation where they spend a day, dependent on numbers, looking at their clinical profile, psychometric evaluating them, and seeing if there's any red flags that are buried in the recesses of their unconscious mind that would suggest that they are potentially a danger to children? What do you think? Yeah, instead of giving them a gun like we do in the military, we give them access to kids. Yes, and uh, as we've said, 130,000 have gone through these uh, gates in Australia, potentially millions worldwide. It's hard to quantify the damage that's been done because of this. And so if the military can learn from this and improve their psychometric testing to identify potentially violent individuals, why can't the church do the same thing and identify those with potentially violent and or sexual interest towards children? Well, I think it makes sense. And we live in the 21st century. We have these tools available to us. We certainly have strong evidence of this type of offending behaviour. And, of course, vulnerable people go into these jobs. I guess part of the issue is, too, is how much of this is actually created by the environment that they work in. Uh, We were discussing earlier people with fantasies or people who don't have fantasies. What do you do if you're not attracted to kids and you find yourself working in an institution where a number of the other people are and are acting out on those fantasies? What do you think? Well, yeah, I guess we see this in all sorts of institutions, don't you? You see it with bullying in hierarchical institutions, sexual abuse. And I guess you if you put your yourself in the position of a hypothetical individual going into one of these environments and you start to see this abuse, you witness it, even if that's not your natural predilection to perpetrate the abuse yourself, what do you do? Do you go along with it? Do you get groomed into it? Do you leave? I mean, how do, how do, how do people respond? I think it creates enormous cognitive dissonance, obviously, because what they're seeing doesn't marry with their values. And a lot of the research on dissonance says that some people will acquiesce to what's going on because the dissonance is too uncomfortable for them. I can't see how you could remain in an institution like that, um, observing this and remaining unless you join the club. I just don't see how you could do that because you'd be ostracised by your peers for one thing. So do you think that some people obviously join the church because they know that they will get access to children and that they're vulnerable victims and they know that they're going to be protected, whilst other people who have a genuine calling may actually be kind of almost groomed into the behaviour 
because of the situation in which they find themselves. I think that's quite possible. And I think with the earlier group you described, it may be that they have these fantasies, but they may think, well, I'll be able to withstand the temptation because I'll, I'll be part of the church and I'll be reporting to God and all the rest of it. But inevitably, you know, the sexual drive overrides all those sort of cognitive inhibitions and they offend. The other group, I think it's, look, I've seen it in other institutions and, uh, you know, it happens in the police, happens in prisons, where if you're not part of the culture, boy, do you get ostracised very quickly and you're then broken down, so you leave. And when people leave, I imagine that they're probably quite fearful of speaking out themselves. They don't want to be the person to go up against the Catholic Church if they've seen abuse and speak out. Surely they're just most people, like in other institutions when they witness bullying or sexual harassment or whatever it is, if they leave, they're out. They're going to stay silent. Well, it's like what happens with all whistleblowers. Even governments pick, and pick on whistleblowers. There's a lot of cases going on at the moment on that point. Yes, there are. Uh, where people have been, you know, shamelessly bullied by the authority of government. These people are not always protected. We've had a lot of examples of people who are whistleblowers who suffer the consequences of putting their hand up. In the situation we're talking about, even if there's not legal sanctions against them for whistleblowing, inevitably there will be bullying, there will be threats, family members may be threatened and so on. It's just what goes on. And of course, all of that reduces the likelihood of them wanting to put their hand up to dob the others in because they don't want the problem. So really this is the another form of like the David and Goliath battle, isn't it? The church is all-powerful, fully resourced with, you know, endless amounts of money to protect itself and lawyers, etc. And then you have the victim survivors trying to gain their voice in this space and also the people who may have been silenced as members of the Catholic Church. I think that's very true and uh, it's an appropriate biblical analogy, if I may say so. They're, um, they're up a, a, against a lot in terms of money, power, political influence mm. and uh, I think it takes a lot of courage to speak out. The victim survivors that I've assessed have spoken out because uh, they've come to me primarily through litigation, gone to the police. The problem with a lot of these historical cases is that the offenders are dead or they're, they're dementing and they can't remember and, you know, they decide not to proceed with charges against them. So for those people, there's less kind of return on what they're doing. But um, it takes a lot of courage and uh, there are powerful forces that they have to confront in terms of that process. And so is that why we see pockets of this all over the world? You know, we have this, this one umbrella of the Catholic Church. And as you say, you know, it happens in other religious institutions and other institutional hierarchies. But we've got the Catholic Church and there are these pockets of abuse of children happening all over the world. So is is that the core here, is the power that the Catholic Church has? And whilst it maintains that power and that level of resource, it's going to be very difficult to break down these patterns of abuse and expose them and prevent this from happening into the future? Well, I think that's right. I think there's been in the past a lot of denial, a lot of duck shoving, um, a lot of not wanting to know about it. 
and it's much harder to deal with the problem than to bury the problem. But I think too, getting back to your earlier point, that some people who join the church and get involved with this type of criminal conduct do so in the knowledge that they may well be protected by the church and protected by their peers. So it's a cabal of evil, it's institutionalised abuse that often is not reported. But the only way to stop it really is to get the church on board, to get them to take some responsibility and accountability, start vetting those who want to move into these positions in the church, and when it is identified that there are victims, to properly offer reparation to those individuals, counselling, treatment, support, and you know, financially too, to try and repair some of the harm that has been caused. I agree, it's utopian, and bearing in mind we've had a Royal Commission, we've had a Senate inquiry decades ago into this. From my observations and experience, the church is still kicking and screaming, refusing to pay compensation, refusing to acknowledge the depth of the problem, and really is refusing to make serious structural change to what goes on within the organisation. Thank you for listening to Motive and Method. I'm Tim Watson-Munro. And I'm Dr Xanthi Mallet. If you're enjoying this series, you can give us a five-star review, recommend us to your friends and family, or subscribe to our channel and feed. And if you would like, you can set up an alert that will let you know when a new episode drops. We'll be back in your ears next week. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.